Our sermon today is the second in our new series on Psalm 22. I'm holding in my hands here a devotional that we are doing as a church on Psalm 22. How are these things related, you ask? Great question. The answer is this. Every year, uh, this is year number four, I feel like we've done this now, where we take a psalm and we, on the Sunday mornings, we will preach it and dig into it and see what God has to tell us through it. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all the way through Saturday, every single day, we have a devotional written in accordance with that sermon. And so... um, What you will find if you look at our Facebook page any morning at 6.01 a.m., you will see that we will just have posted that day's devotional. And so we want you to have your copy of this if you should want one. If you need paper copies, you can buy one online. If you want one printed out because you don't want to buy it, but you still want to have paper, I will print one for you. Um, You can get it for free today on Amazon. If you go and put my name in or put Psalm 22 devotional, you can have a free Kindle version of that if that's the way you'd prefer to do it. Or like I said, every single morning on Facebook and Twitter at 6 a.m., we will post that day's devotional so you can follow along that way and even share uh, with those in your life who you think might be blessed by that. So uh, that said, last week we talked about loneliness. As we're working through Psalm 22, King David is going through this period of sorrow and suffering, this trial and grief. So last week what we did is we kind of worked through the first part of the, of the scripture, and he was, he was just kind of profoundly lonely. And this week we get into the next piece of scripture, and what we're going to see is that David is in a battle. He's suffering through a, a battle, and all of sorrow and suffering, if you have been through that, you know it to be a battle. That when you're working through difficult things, when you're in a trial, when you have uh, been in trouble, that it really feels like a battle. And there's two actual pieces to it that we're going to see through David. First, there's an internal battle, and that leaves us humbled. The second, we have an external battle, and that leaves us wounded. And so what we're going to see is that humility and that woundedness is actually where our hope is found. And so that's where we're going to go today. We're going to go right now to Psalm 22. We'll put it on the screen so you can read along with me. King David writes this. And starting in verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let the Lord deliver him since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, he says to God. Even at my mother's breast, from birth I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. So do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. We begin this passage by looking at David's first idea. He says, I'm a worm and not a man. David has been brought low. For a king to say such a thing tells us just how stark a situation this is for him. He's not just been brought to his knees. He's been brought to his face. He's in the dust. He is as a worm. And as he finds himself in this really incredibly humiliated, humbled position, even then, David says, the people begin to sneer and gossip that while he's being torn down from the inside out, that the outside decides to just go ahead and pile on while they're at it. This is an internal battle that we're witnessing. Internal battles leave us humbled. The other thing that can leave us humbled if uh, you are anything like me is the first car you drive when you are 16. I drove a Pontiac 6000, which I believe, if you drove one of these, in its day off the lot must have been a really nice car. Once it's been handed down, not through one older sibling, but two, and you are the third one who calls it your first car, and some things have changed. This is before the days of uh, standard anti-lock brakes, so it did not have that. One day, I found this out the hard way. It was, uh, it was in San Antonio, and on a, like a 10-lane, 5-lane divided highway each side, and, and it was raining, and people were going 1,000 miles an hour in a you know, kind of urban, what's the word? Uh, we don't have traffic here. It's just weird. 
Yeah, traffic. Okay, so it's like a lot of people everywhere. And, and all of a sudden, everybody starts stopping. And in front of me, I can see I'm, I'm practicing great driving. I'm not looking at the front of the car, but I'm looking way into the distance because at 16, I was an incredible driver, I promise you. And so I look up and I say, everybody's stopping. I shall also stop. And I hit the brakes. And the unfamiliar, to many of you, you, you hit the brakes without anti-lock brakes. And sometimes what non-anti-lock brakes do is they lock. Um, the problem here is that when you hit the brakes, nothing, nothing really happens. Everything just kind of goes, here we are. And on slick roads, I just kind of kept going. And so then what you're taught to do with non-anti-lock brakes is to pump the brakes, pump the brakes. So I'm pumping the brakes. Everything's trying to get me to stop and nothing is actually going to have me stop except the line of cars that is growing ever closer by the second. I look up and I think I have two options here. I can either hit this car right in front of me or there's a 45 degree embankment just to, uh, off the shoulder of the highway. So I have two options. I have plow into cars, plow into embankment. So being the responsible driver I am, I decide to plow into the embankment and make that my choice. So let me see if I can put you in the car with me. So you're going to be in the car with me. Um, it's a pretty big car. What we'll do, I'm driving, and here's the embankment, right? It's a 45-degree embankment, and I'm driving, and I'm driving, and I'm pumping the brakes, and nothing is happening. Don't get this view very often. It's nice. Okay, and then um, I swerve to miss the car, and I don't know how this happened. I don't understand physics. My front two wheels hit the embankment, and then we do this together. And then there I am. And now I am facing oncoming traffic with four blown tires. There's some, some light denting somehow from the embankment. But otherwise, everything is fine. And it literally looks like I did the perfect reverse parallel parking job on the side of the highway, which I will take full credit for. Um, unfortunately, the car was not drivable. I was a little shaken. A couple cobwebs there to shake out. So I look up from this... Uh, averted tragedy. I didn't hit anybody. The cop later tells me that I missed the car by a couple inches and I missed the pole by a couple inches. So good job. I got lucky. And um, I look up and I happen to have stopped right in front of the mall. So being 16 and very responsible, not worried about this at all, I get up and I immediately walk up the embankment. I kind of crab crawl, uh, crawl my way up this embankment and uh, through the, the misty driving rain. And then I, I walk in the mall, do a little shopping, look around, check out the new styles kind of shaking it off, give myself a few minutes, make my way into a department store. Remember, there are no cell phones, and so I have to ask somebody, hi, may I borrow your phone? I left my car on the highway. It's a long story. Can I just, and so I call my mother, and I say, hi, mom. Funny thing happened on the way to the mall today. Um, I just have the most interesting parking spot. I'd love for you to come see it, and um, I think there's probably going to be some police there, so let's just see how this happens. I come out of the mall after a little bit. Yes, the police are there. My mother is there. I wish this was the only time, and, and we kind of work through what do we do now? And it all works out and tell the rest of the story some other day. The part that is important today is I had the same feeling walking out and seeing the police and my mother as I did many times, but that feeling was actually mirrored by the feeling I had when the brakes were not working and the cars were getting closer and I really had no choice but to sort of become a passenger in my own car. That is, I had lost all sense of power and control, both in walking up to the policeman and my mother and in approaching this growing pile of cars in front of me. I had no power and I had no control. And it's a profoundly helpless feeling when you finally get to a place where you have no power and no control. Because all of this thing that I think I'm, I think I'm driving, I think I'm in control here, and when nothing works the way it's supposed to, all of a sudden you realize, I am a little person inside of a 2,000-pound missile and I am a passenger. And let's just see what happens. This is a real thing that we have to kind of deal with. And cars are the, kind of the best example of our, our desire for control in the world and the way that we uh, unleash that. Cars are designed to go fast. 
humanity, I would probably argue, was not designed to go fast. Like God created us to go, you know, I don't know how fast you can run, but I'm my top speed, 30, 45 miles an hour. <laughs> Thank you for laughing. Cheetahs were designed to go fast. Usain Bolt might be going fast. We were not designed to go that fast. But power and pride, when we are in a car, we feel like, yes, I am absolutely entitled to go as fast as my ankle will take me. I mean, this is, think about just in your seat. You move your ankle just like ever so slightly. That's what it takes to go from zero to 60. If you have any muscle in your lower right leg, you can just go as fast as you want, which is a little bit silly when you think about it. Then we're driving as fast as we want. We're going 85 on the highway, making sure no one's... uh, waiting to pull us over in the middle of the, the highway there, and we're going as fast as we want, and then people in the, in the car say they're getting a little warm, and you know what you do? Because you are the king of the universe, you have all power and control, you say, I will turn on colder air for you, and you do that. And colder air begins to pour into the car, and then your passenger next to you goes, wait, I was feeling okay, I'd actually like some warmer air if you don't mind. And then because you got the car that has dual climate control, you hit a button and you turn that air and you go, look at us all, we're great. Because you are the king of the universe, you have all the control in the world all the power, all the control, then you'll guess what, guys? You weren't alive in the 80s, kids. Listen to this for a while, and they close their ears, and they get upset because you're listening to Ain't Nobody Gonna Break My Pride, but it's a good song, and they'll just figure it out when they're older. And, and you're in total control. And then your brakes lock, and you realize in an instant that you didn't have any of the control you thought, that all of it's an illusion. This is uh, an overwrought illustration to tell us the same thing that you know. Have you walked through sorrow and suffering? It is the exact same feeling. That we work through life in all the power, all the control. I know where I'm going. I know what I'm doing. I can change the dial. I can twist this. And I got life on lock. And then sorrow hits and suffering hits. And we realize it was all an illusion. That I don't have all the control I thought I did. I don't have the power I thought I did. I want it back, but I've lost it. I cannot change the circumstance around me. We find ourselves passengers on the journey of life. And that's a profoundly helpless feeling to want to change your circumstances and realize that you're a passenger. I can't change the diagnosis that the doctor just bring. I can't fix the broken relationship. I can't undo the damage done. I can't stop the spiraling trouble in my life. We hate this idea because we love power and control. I have a car, uh, strangely, I didn't graduate very much in terms of car quality. So my car outside in the parking lot, the little red roller skate that you pass on your way home, it's a manual everything car. It's got manual locks, which means you have to use a key. There's no button. Use a key to get in, and and the back doesn't open as much, so it's always open because it's hard to unlock. So if you ever need to get in my car, go in the back. (laughs) It also has manual transmission because that was cheaper, and so I have a manual transmission, so I change my own gears. Thank you very much. It also has manual windows, which I actually is not, wasn't, that wasn't a financial decision. The windows were actually an integrity decision, and I don't know if you've realized this, but when you say roll up the windows and you hit a button, you're kind of making yourself out to be a liar. In my car, I roll the windows because I'm a man of integrity and I refuse to be brought into the lie. Think about it. Next time someone says roll up the window, just look at them and be like, come on, man. This car is sitting there it is in my name because I asked for the cheapest car they had on the lot. Naturally, it was the car with the least amount of what? Power and control. It was the car on the lot with the least amount of power and control. Why? Because we will pay money for more power and more control because it is valuable to us. So even in the tiniest little ways, I want more power and more control. 
I want the sunroof because I want the power to be able to harness the sun if I am driving and it is sunny out. I will take that. I had a friend who had uh, like a 1981 BMW that had a sunroof, but his sunroof, you know the little, the little uh, winder that you have for like your windows at your house? He had one of those. And so if he wanted to open the sunroof, he had to like stick this little winder key up and wind the thing open. And I was like, but he's still got a sunroof and I got a Pontiac 6000, so it's worth something. But now he doesn't have to do that because he can have it power and control. We love power and control. We value them. We pay more for them. And tragedy and trial and grief, that all that comes with it, leaves us holding the crank, leaves us holding that window crank without the ability to roll anything up or down. And we scurry and we try and we do our best and nothing will obey us. And it's a profoundly helpless feeling and it's one that so many people in this room know. This is the internal battle that sorrow and suffering bring. This battle between our desires to be able to control our universe and the realization, the humbling realization that we are, we are not God. And the hard truth in it is that sorrow and suffering, that grief and loss, these things always humble us. The question isn't whether we'll be humbled, but how long we'll hold the illusion that we can still maintain control, how long we're going to grasp and attempt to steer through the pain, how long we're going to pump the brakes without stopping. Sorrow and suffering bring humility. That is the internal battle and is a battle that is always won by the humbling force of sorrow. The external battle is one that leaves us wounded. So while that's happening internally, we see David dealing with this internal lack of control of what's around him, and then there's this external battle that's happening as well. David says, they mock me and they hurl insults, they shake their head and they sneer at me. He's talking about the people around him. There's enemies, and then there's well-intended enemies. There's people who are against him, and then there's people who are probably for him, but anybody who's been through anything hard knows that not everybody says the right thing at the right time. Not everybody knows just what to say and when to say it. What David is experiencing is not only these insults and not only this mocking, but then people begin to question his faith. You hear it in the way that he quotes them. Well, if he believes in this God, why wouldn't he just pray harder? Why wouldn't he just, you know, if he would just appeal to God, maybe he'd get it all figured out. Or so they appeal to his faith, and if he had more faith, and you've heard it said, well, if he just had more faith, he would pray and it would sort itself out. The other side of that is, is the outside, the person outside of faith that will go, What kind of God does he have that he can pray all he wants and God just sends more suffering? It's not the kind of God I want. And so either people question the faith of the person or they question the object of the person's faith. And so this external battle begins where people looking at the sufferer, looking at the sorrow, watching the grief go, either way, something's wrong. And so people along the way, tisk tisk. would a good God really do that? Would a good Christian really endure that? People say things like, what's the point of being faithful if all it earns you is tragedy? The harder part that I mentioned a minute ago is it often comes from well-intended people. Well-intended people who do and say the wrong things. This happens because there is no guidebook for sorrow. There is no guidebook for grief. There is no clear map that says if you will follow these 14 steps, you'll be through it in about a month and a half. Or I just went through this with this other congregant. Let me just hand you the list that they went through and it'll be the same. And the reality is it's never the same. 
that every grief is different and every grief is unique and every suffering is its own. And so each one has its own guidebook, it has its own map, and it's one that hasn't been written yet. And so we kind of write it as we walk through it. It's a journey through a fog that doesn't have a clear destination. And if we're in that journey through that fog and someone near and dear to us says the wrong thing, well, they didn't know either. But often those are the ones that hurt the most, is the well-intended enemy who in the moment thinks they're being your friend. And they're intending to be your friend and they go, well, haven't you just thought of this? And even though they mean well, it just twists the knife. You go, gosh, didn't really need to hear that right now. This is not a shaming of the hopeful or the helpful. If you've tried to be helpful and it failed as you're walking through life with someone who's sorrow and, in sorrow and suffering, if you've done that and you've failed, that's okay. Similarly, if you've had to distance yourself from a well-intended friend who missed the mark, that's okay too. Like I said, this is all about figuring out as we go and it's all about are we well-intended as we go. We're going to have a whole lot more on this. Actually, have Dr. Carissa Watt, who's going to come in on the 25th, two Sundays, three Sundays from now. Three Sundays from now, she'll be here, and uh, Sunday night, we're going to have childcare, and we're putting it in the evening so you can invite friends, families, coworkers, people go to other churches, whoever might need to hear how to walk alongside people who are grieving. Um, Dr. Watt is not only trained in this uh, academically, but clinically and professionally practices it. And so she has an incredible depth of wisdom. And she's actually going to come and I've asked her to please come and make this really practical for us. Because some of us will leave today and go, that's all well and good, but what do I do? Like, how do I not do what I did last time? Or, or how do I help people do better for me next time? And that's actually what that's there for, is we're going to bring her in. And so uh, if you have, bring your husband, bring your neighbor, bring your coworker, bring whoever, and we can be trained a little bit together in how that works. Like we've been saying, this is about you. This whole series is about you and your sorrow and your suffering and your grief and your loss, but it's also about how you are for others. So we're going to keep working on training you in that. One of the things I did as I was preparing this devotional for this uh, month was I referenced every single word in there with multiple people in this community and other communities, people that I knew had been through profound suffering of uh, a certain type. And so one had lost a child and, and one had lost a spouse and one had been through a painful uh, marriage and, and they kind of had these different experiences. But I, I wanted to put all of these words in front of people because the last thing I wanted to do as I'm writing about well-intended enemies was become one to you. Was to write something down that you would go, gosh, that doesn't feel right or that feels hurtful. Something about that's actually painful. So I wish I hadn't been a part of that. And one of the days that got the most feedback, I believe, is coming up on Tuesday. Day eight, when we talk about this well-intended enemy and these people who mean well but don't quite hit the mark. And I expected one of these people, I expected them to tell me how true it was that people had wounded them in a place where they really felt like they just needed someone to sit with them, but gosh, this really hurts. And I was really waiting for this aha moment from this friend who was uh, proofing this devotional for us. What they said instead was, I can really see how I was that for the person that I lost which was just a heartbreaking thing to hear. I was thinking people were that as you sat by the bedside of your loved one and you lost them. Weren't people hurtful to you? And the response was, well, yes, but I was actually thinking about all the ways that I could have been better for the one I eventually lost. I thought, A, that's heartbreaking, but B, it's humbling and it's exactly where we want to sit. We want to be thinking about our own walk in sorrow and suffering, but also be considering at every moment, how are we with those around us? Who around me needs a touch? Who around me needs a hug? Who around me needs to sit? in the ashes for a bit, and just be. That awareness is what we're aiming for. And I don't know and can't know if David heard these specific things directly or not. 
what we do know is we can see these wounds, these external words and wounds coming his way. And they do multiple things for us. One, when we have these external battles start raging around us, we begin to isolate. People pull back and put up walls. People become fear-based and you begin to keep others at a distance. Don't let them in. Which is, if you think about it, just another form of regaining control in a situation where control is lost. I can't control the situation, but I can sure control who gets in. Second thing we do is we become adversarial. We create an adversarial stance. We become punch first people when we're hurt. I will hurt others before they can hurt me, which is another way to control. Control where the pain will fall. Third thing that happens is it creates a pressure of performance for many people. Many people struggle in sorrow and suffering, feeling like they can't go back to their friends, they can't come back to church, they can't They can't go back to normal life lest others are watching to see how they react to the thing that they're working through. And it's a real thing. This idea that all eyes are on me as I come back in the building, as I head back to work, as I get back to church, as I see my friends again, that they're all waiting for some profound thing, and and it creates a pressure of performance. And whether entirely real or imagined, it's still there. And so we have to figure out how to work through that too, because even the performance aspect is its own method of control. A preacher in, in Dallas, Matt Chandler, is a kind of an up-and-coming, was an up-and-coming preacher. He's still with us. He's still an incredible leader, teacher, all these things. But um, about 15 years ago, I kind of found out about him, and I was just taken by his incredible teaching. High passion, uh, great doctrine, but a really kind of relatable way of making Scripture known. And funny enough, he grew up in some way with my wife, taught my wife how to waltz and baptize their sisters. And so he's kind of the superstar in the evangelical world. And, and we have this kind of one-off connection to him. And word came out a few years after I had started listening to him and kind of following along with his thoughts that uh, he had passed out. He, had a, he fainted at Thanksgiving one year. Went and got a scan and he had brain cancer. 32, young family, thriving ministry, brain cancer. It's just not the next thing you think is going to be in the string. And I remember, as I say, that the, the pressure of performance happens and it doesn't necessarily have to be and it could be real or imagined and all this is true. The first thing I did when I heard about the Seuss is I waited to figure out what he's going to do. I'm going to watch this. Not in some morose way, but I'm going, How, what would I do? And he puts a video out to his community that then goes out to the whole internet and he, he basically says, I'm going to suffer well. My goal is to suffer well. And I remember be feeling like really small because there was nothing in me as I went, I went through all the different ways that he might respond to this news. Nothing in me thought, you know what I would say is I would suffer well. I would say, you know what, I don't know why this happened, but God surely has a plan and I guess we'll figure it out and maybe we'll see you on the other side. I don't know what I would say but I certainly wouldn't have gone, I intend to suffer well. And he went on and he said, I believe that it's a blessing that God has counted me worthy to carry this for others to see. And I was just blown away. But he looked at the the trial that God was putting in front of him. He looked at the hurdle that God was putting in his life and this great suffering that was going to come upon him. And his first response for his people and for the world was, amazing that God has considered me worthy to carry this. He said, so my my goal is to suffer well and to make much of the Lord. Whereas my enemies, the people in our community that think this whole faith thing is nonsense, they're waiting for me 
to use this as a way to curse God for doing this. They're, they're looking at me going, hey, you're so faithful, now look at you. What do you think now? And he goes, I will show them that everything I've said is still true, and it's going to be more true as a result of what we walk through, and I don't know the answer, but I will suffer well, and we're going to do it together for God's glory and his fame. And I said, wow. He fights through. He makes it through. He survives. He thrives. But the lesson I take from him is this idea that maybe God is putting things upon us because he considers us worthy to be his ambassadors in them. That's what David is doing. David is being insulted and mocked and questioned. David looks at all these people that are against him, and what does he do? He looks at them, and instead of lashing out at them, he looks up. He looks up to the Lord and he says, you brought me here, you made me, you formed me, you sustained me, you know me, and you'll save me. Even when well-intended people try to stir up the pain, even when enemies are there jabbing and punching, David's response is not to lash out, but to look up. In the midst of tragedy and trial, we have two possible responses. We can lash out or look up. Lashing out provides us one more sense of control, one more spot where we feel like at least I'm the one punching. But in hard times, we either lash out against those that we feel are providing the pain or we look up to the one thing that can save us. With the recognition that we have always only been passengers on this planet. And that's a really hard place to find that you and I think we're in control. We think we're driving the ship. We think we're the ones that have this whole thing figured out and then sorrow and suffering hits and we find ourselves profoundly out of control. And it is in that moment where we recognize that we have always only been passengers that our next heartbeat and our next breath and our next tomorrow is entirely up to the will of God to make it so. And if that is true, then it puts us back in our proper perspective with God. It puts us back in our proper place and we realize that we've never been in control and that the world has gotten to this point for a reason that God has capable hands to steer it further. Even when it ends in ways we don't understand, that doesn't mean that it ends the way we want. It doesn't mean that it ends the way that, that makes sense to us. And that's where the pain comes and that's where the sorrow falls. We'll talk a whole lot more about pain next week and the way we respond to it. The question maybe for today is, is it possible you've been counted worthy to carry something for a season as a witness of God's goodness and his glory? The ultimate lesson from David is this. He says, I'm a worm and not a man. He is the king. And notice David doesn't try to power up. David stays low and looks up. But you can't look up to God if you're looking down on the universe. And pride will get us every time. If we are the people that are looking down on the universe because we think we're in control, you cannot look up on God if we spend our lives looking down upon the universe. We have to find ourselves in our proper perspective. David embraces the humiliation of the situation and leans into the deep humility and woundedness and then looks to God. Because humility and woundedness are where hope is found. It's entirely counterintuitive. It is not in comfort and security. It's in humility and woundedness where the greatest hope is found. David looks up and sees God. We look up in our times of sorrow and suffering and we see God. We see Jesus. Psalm 22 is a messianic psalm, meaning it was written by David for David in David's context, but it was also written because the Savior, the Messiah, would go through the same things and walk the same path and even quotes the same verses on the cross. These words of David were precursors to the words of Jesus, and it follows the same narrative arc. So the king of kings was brought low, just like King David. 
Jesus was made to be a worm and not a man. He was brought back to the dust, the same dust that he picked up and blew into to make Adam. Jesus, who walked in the dirt, who drew in the dirt to teach along his path, who spit in the dirt when the man was blind and makes mud out of the dirt to heal him. Jesus, a man familiar with the dirt, then crumbles under the weight of the cross on the path to his own crucifixion, face down in the dirt, ultimately bleeds into the dirt, his sacrifice paying the penalty for our sin. By the humbling and woundedness of Jesus, you and I are made free. This is why humility and woundedness are the path to hope. Jesus was humbled that you and I might be elevated. Jesus was wounded that you and I might be healed. Jesus fought the ultimate battle on our behalf internally, externally, eternally. Jesus leaned into his suffering and he refused to lash out against his oppressors. He had every right as a sinless man being oppressed to lash out. And read back through the story of the passion and the crucifixion. Jesus doesn't lash out. He looks up. He keeps his eyes on the Father and he fights the battle against sorrow and suffering. Not by lashing out, but by becoming sorrow and suffering on our behalf. This is our hope. That we have a king like David or a king of kings like Jesus who not only have been through things we've been through, but they know the pain we know. And they know the battles we fight. And in Jesus, not only is the battle won, but the battle plan becomes clear that we let go of the delusion of control and power, that we take hold of the humility being offered to us, that we look up instead of lashing out, and that we make much of God. We make much of God both in seasons of sunshine and suffering. That each day is an opportunity for you to be counted worthy to walk in a way that magnifies he who made us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your, uh, your word is heavy. Life can feel heavy at times, God. We are a people not uh, unafflicted. That everyone is in a battle, big or small, public or private, that we all have things that we fight on a day-to-day basis. Lord, our prayer is that you would find us humbled in those battles. Father, give us the recognition that uh, not only are we not in control, but we never were. Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your goodness in those moments that when we look up to you, we would not be left feeling alone. Lord, I pray that we would feel your, uh, your embrace today. That those in this room who are in an acute struggle right now, who walked into this place with a burden that felt too heavy to bear, Father, that they would know that they don't walk alone, they walk with you, and you've walked before them. Lord, for those who may be walking with others, walking alongside the grieving or the troubled, Lord, I pray that we would find our humility in there as well. That if we have the right words to say, we say them, and if we simply have the wherewithal to sit, that we sit. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that in the moments when we feel alone, we can always turn back and recognize that he has first walked this path and that his humility and his woundedness have paved the way for our hope and our wholeness. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for his willingness to take it to the deepest point 
to take pain and suffering and sorrow beyond where we can imagine, that we might walk alongside of you, that we might, we might walk in this world as ambassadors of you. So Father, give us hope. Point us towards healing. In Jesus' name, amen.